Welcome to episode 164 of the Fredcast Cycling Podcast for August 4th, 2010. My name is David, and I'm a Fred. In this week's episode of the Fredcast, stage racing returns to the state of Colorado. Chicago launches bike share, and London's glitches allow people free rides on their bike share. Luis Leon Sanchez wins the Clásica Ciclista San Sebastián. Lots of professional cycling news. Bicycling Magazine's top nine list of cycling movies. More from Press Camp. So sit back, relax, and if you're riding your bike hammer, just a little bit harder because here comes the Fredcast. Welcome back to another episode of the Fredcast, and this week's episode of the Fredcast is brought to you by Jensen USA at www.jensenusa.com slash thefredcast, and also brought to you by Epic Planet and their new release, Epic Texas Hill Country. Go to epicplanet.tv and use promo code TEXAS at checkout for $5 off. More on all of that in a minute, but first let's get to the news. And starting with the big news of the day, it was Lance Armstrong and Governor Ritter on the steps of the Colorado State Capitol in Denver in front of a very large crowd of cyclists, many of whom heard through Twitter that Lance would be in attendance to make an announcement that everyone assumed would be the rebirth of stage racing in the state of Colorado. And then they all knew that they'd be able to go for a ride with Lance later in the day. And indeed, it was the announcement by Armstrong and Ritter of a new stage race in the state of Colorado to begin August 22nd, 2011 and run through the 28th of August. And it will be called the Quiznos Pro Challenge. Not a whole lot of details yet about stage lengths or locations. However, according to the spokespeople that were at the press event today, it will run through Denver, either beginning and or ending in Denver, plus good indications that it will go through Boulder and other front range cities. And probably it's a good bet that you can expect some tough mountain stages in next year's Quiznos Pro Challenge. I think it's great to see stage racing come back to Colorado, especially when it is being promoted by somebody of the stature of Lance Armstrong and by a company with such visibility as Quiznos. However, my concern, of course, is that if you look at the fact that uh, the Tour of Georgia has had problems, the Tour of Missouri has problems, in the past the Tour of Utah has also had problems, all three of them with gaining the financial support necessary to sustain those races. It leads you to wonder whether such a high-profile event like the Quiznos Pro Challenge on one end of the year and the Tour of California uh, just a few months earlier, whether those two sort of bookend events are going to bring about further problems for Georgia, Missouri, and indeed Utah. I brought that up on Twitter today, and a lot of people thought that I was absolutely out of my mind, but consider this from the AP's story about the Quiznos Pro Challenge. Apparently, the Associated Press 
had an audience with Lance Armstrong and were able to do a personal interview with him. This from the AP story, quote, with the cancellations of the tours of Georgia and Missouri, the Quiznos Pro Challenge and the Tour of California will be the only ones on U.S. soil next year. Stand by. Continuing, the August dates of Colorado's race will fit between the Tour de France and the Spanish Vuelta, Armstrong noted. The California race is held in the spring. Two points. One, they mentioned that the Tour of Georgia and the Tour of Missouri were canceled, and therefore they said that the Tour of California and the Quiznos Pro Challenge would be the only professional stage races in the United States next year. So are we assuming the Tour of Utah already has died? That's point number one. Number two, again, the August dates fitting between the Tour de France and the Vuelta a España also makes it sound like the Tour of Utah is a non-event. However, it has recently been announced that George Hincappy from Team BMC and his Team BMC squad will be right here in Utah in just a couple of weeks for the Tour of Utah. It was also announced today that Levi Leipheimer would be joining the Peloton at the Tour of Utah also in 2010. One wonders whether those two appearances are intended to bolster not only the visibility but also the viability of the Tour of Utah as it sees further competition from its neighbor to the east. Going to be honest, I'm pessimistic about the future of the Tour of Utah in light of the Quiznos Pro Challenge, especially if the Tour of Utah wants to continue its August dates. I think that it is going to be very difficult for the major professional squads to consider two major stage races in the United States within literally a few days of each other. I hope I'm wrong. I love the fact that the Tour of Utah is here in my home state and I have the opportunity to see some world-class athletes every year right here in Utah. But considering the visibility of Lance Armstrong and Quiznos and the attention, the worldwide attention that this announcement has received today, I remain pessimistic. So congratulations to Colorado for bringing stage racing back to a state that is well-known, we'll leave Blackhawk out, that is well-known for being a mecca for cyclists and a wonderful place to be a cyclist. So it's a great thing that that's coming back to Colorado. I am excited, and yes, I will be going to Colorado next year to see the inaugural Quiznos Pro Challenge, and I hope to see you there. Summer's a great time to visit the Chicago area, and it's been made even better thanks to the fact that there is now a bike share program available in the Windy City. There is a, basically it's a pilot program at this point being put on by B-Cycle and their local business partner, Bike and Roll. They're calling it a demonstration program, and it launched last Friday. Now, you can pick up bikes from six different locations downtown, including the Museum Campus, the Buckingham Fountain, and McCormick Place. If you've ever been to Chicago for a trade show, you know McCormick Place. Now, the bike rental is going to cost, and I'm going to be honest, this sounds a little bit steep to me, $10 per hour if you don't have a membership. However, membership costs $35 per month, and that gives you one free hour for each use of the bike. So 
If you live in Chicago and you're looking to participate in a bike share program, the 35 bucks a month is probably pretty reasonable. For a tourist, 10 bucks an hour seems a little bit steep, but guarantee that the next time I'm in Chicago, I'm going to give the bike share program a try. And if you've had an opportunity to do so, please send in an audio comment. I would love to hear how well or how not so well the program has worked for you. Also last Friday, Transport for London started their own bike share program. This one, I have to admit, much more affordable than the one in Chicago. Here's the way this system works. Those who sign up for the program are sent keys. Those keys enable you to unlock bicycles at one of the docking points throughout the city. The keys are individually identifiable so that when you use your key, the system knows that you've done so and is able to charge you accordingly. The first 30 minutes of a bike ride are free. 30 to 60 minutes can cost one pound, up to 50 pounds for 24 hours, but still seems much more reasonable than the system in Chicago. However, when the system launched last Friday, there were a number of glitches. An example that I read about was a woman who put her key in and the docking station insisted that she had already been cycling for 11 hours when literally she just walked up and put in her key. There were enough people who complained that everyone who used the bike hire system in the city of London last Friday, got their fees refunded. They were not charged at all. So you got to admit, fast response when there was a problem. Now, docking stations are available in Camden, the city of London, Hackney, Islington, Lambeth, Kensington, Chelsea, Southwark, Tower Hamlets, Westminster, and several of the Royal Parks. Transport for London is hoping that they will be able to reach its target of 6,000 bikes and 400 docking stations later this year. And they said that just last Friday, more than 6,000 journeys had been carried out on their bikes and that more than 12,000 people had already signed up to take part in this program. So it sounds like this is a program that's going to be very popular in the city of London, and hopefully it will be glitch-free. Hopefully it's already been glitch-free, and it will continue to be so. I don't know whether you're aware of this or not, but New Zealand is the only country in the world, apart from Israel and most of Australia, to have a national mandatory all-age compulsory bicycle helmet law. In other words, if you're on a bicycle in New Zealand, no matter whether you're one or 101, the law says that you must be wearing a bicycle helmet. Now, I've talked here on the show before about how I won't get on a bicycle without wearing a helmet, and I felt really naked without one as I was riding in Amsterdam. Although, as you know, Mark from AmsterdamEyes.com had a lot to say about that and about his feelings about bicycle helmets. And I suspect that there are many of you in the audience who think I'm just out of my mind, no pun intended, for having this strict always wear a helmet stance. In New Zealand now, cycling advocates are wondering whether it's time to revise the mandatory helmet law. They say that the statistics show 
that there has been a dramatic reduction in bicycle use in New Zealand as a result of the mandatory helmet law. It's their contention that the mandatory helmet law is reducing the number of casual cyclists and commuter cyclists and short trips that might otherwise be taken by bicycle simply because of the fact that all riders have to wear their helmets. They're now looking at whether or not they want to push the government to consider at least revising the mandatory helmet law to see whether or not that will encourage more bicycle use in the country of New Zealand. The problem, of course, is that if you're caught riding without a helmet when you're on a bicycle in New Zealand, you could face a fine of $150. However, say the advocates, there is no such mandatory requirement for those on skateboards or those on inline skates or other sporting devices that could be the uh, that could cause head injuries in the way that a fall from a bike could as well. Meanwhile, according to the story that I read, the Ministry of Transport in New Zealand has indicated that they have no plans to review the laws. We'll keep you posted on this, but I, of course, am always interested to hear your thoughts. Feel free to shoot me an email or send me an audio comment. And yes, I will play it here on the show. Coming up next, I've got our professional cycling news. But before we get to that, I want to thank one of our sponsors, and that is Jensen USA at jensenusa.com slash thefredcast. But before you go to that link, just go to www.thefredcast.com where you're going to find out that Jensen USA is having a great sale right now for all your Mavic needs in one place. Wheel sets, rims, shoes, and apparel. Great deals. For instance, the Mavic Cross Ride Disc Wheel Set for $169, regularly $250. The Axioms Complete Set for $269 or the Kazerium Equipe for $399. Some great deals on some great wheels for your bike, plus shoes and apparel from the company that we've already told you so many times is second to none when it comes to customer support and customer service. So if you're looking for some great products from Mavic and you want to get them from a great company at some great prices, go to www.thefredcast.com and click the link on the right-hand side of the page for Jensen USA or go to jensenusa.com slash thefredcast. Once you try JensenUSA.com, you will not want to go anywhere else. We thank JensenUSA.com so much for their support of the Fredcast, and we thank you for your support of JensenUSA. Well, moving on to professional cycling, the next major event after the Tour de France was the Classica San Sebastian in the Basque country of Spain, and this was where... Luis Leon Sanchez was able to get a little bit of redemption for him and his Castaparna team, winning the 234-kilometer event in 5 hours, 47 minutes, and 13 seconds. Second place in that race going to Astana's Alexander Vinokorov. 
And third place going to previous Tour de France winner Carlos Sastra from Team Cervelo Test. The three coming in at the same time, but it was Sanchez winning at the line in 547.13. Fourth place going to Heimar Zubeldia from Team Radio Shack 34 seconds back. And in fifth place, Joaquin Rodriguez from Team Katusha 37 seconds back. Also at the same time, Ryder Hejdal, Robert Gessink, Nicholas Roche, Sammy Sanchez, and Richie Port from Team Saxo Bank. Now, after the Tour de France and the Classica San Sebastian, in the world rankings, Alberto Contador sitting atop the rankings. Uh, second place, Joaquin Rodriguez. Third, Cadell Evans. Fourth, Luis Leon Sanchez. Fifth, Philippe Gilbert, sixth, Alexander Vinokorov. Andy Schleck is in seventh place. Fabian Consolara, his teammate, in eighth. Sammy Sanchez in ninth. And Robert Gessink is in tenth. Up next in August for the UCI World Calendar, going on between August 1st and the 7th is the Tour of Polonia in Poland. August 15th is the Vattenfall Classics in Germany. August 17th through the 24th is the Eneco Tour. August 22nd is the GP West France Plouay. August 28th through the September 19th, the third of our Grand Tours, the Vuelta a España. September 10th and 12th is the Grand Prix Cycliste, first in Quebec and then in Montreal, and then closing out the season October 16th, the Giro di Lombardia in Italy. Well, now that the Tour de France is over, it's also that time of the year when we start thinking about who will be on which teams in the coming season. So for 2011, we had heard rumors that Andy and Frank Schleck would be departing Team Saxo Bank, and that has now been confirmed. There were also rumors that Alberto Contador would not be maintaining his relationship with Team Astana. That also now confirmed as Alberto Contador held a press conference earlier this week with Bjarna Reese from Team Saxo Bank to announce that Alberto Contador would be teaming with Bjarna Reese on next year's squad. And a bit of a surprise, it had been announced earlier this year that Saxo Bank would be dropping their sponsorship of the team for 2011. And it looked like SunGuard was going to become one of the title sponsors. That is true. But Saxo Bank has now renewed. The team will be known as Team Saxo Bank SunGuard. Speaking of Alberto Contador, he has also announced that he is essentially done for the season. He will not be racing in the Vuelta a España in 2010. Meanwhile, over at Team Radio Shack, one of the gentlemen who has been on their Trek Livestrong Under-23 Development Squad, Taylor Finney, whose dad we had on the show a couple of weeks ago, made his professional debut with Team Radio Shack just today in the opener of the Tour of Denmark. Unfortunately, Taylor did have a crash in the last moments of today's stage, but according to Radio Shack's team director, Dirk DeMall, while Taylor did go down and he did require some stitches on his knee, he will be okay to continue in the race if he so chooses. So congratulations to Taylor Finney on making his debut in the Radio Shack Red and Black. 
Now, speaking of Team Radio Shack, one of the things we didn't talk about on last week's show was a little bit of controversy that occurred on the final stage of this year's Tour de France. Team Radio Shack showed up at the start line wearing the jerseys that were not the same as the ones that they had been wearing throughout the rest of the race. These were black jerseys with the number 28 emblazoned on them, signifying the 28 million people that Lance Armstrong's Livestrong Foundation estimates are currently living with cancer. Unfortunately, UCI rules say that you cannot show up to the start line or indeed participate in a stage in a jersey that is not one that has been pre-approved, not one that you've been wearing throughout the race. And if you are interested in doing so, you need to get approval beforehand before you begin the race. And as a result, that final stage toward the Champs-Élysées in Paris was delayed as Lance Armstrong's team Radio Shack was forced to change their jerseys. And there was quite a bit of controversy as a result. In addition to the controversy, there was this tweet from Johan Brunil when he said, okay, people, now it's official. To be a race commissar, you don't need brains, but only know the rules. Their motto, and then he said this in French, but essentially it means it's the rules. As a result of that controversy, the UCI issued a press release indicating that Team Radio Shack would have to appear before a disciplinary hearing. And the UCI, in their wording, makes it very clear that they were very angry about this situation. They said, the UCI wishes to announce that disciplinary proceedings will be opened against Team Radio Shack for breaching the regulations governing riders' clothing. The UCI regrets that an initiative for a cause as worthy as the fight against cancer was not coordinated beforehand with the commissaires and organizers of the event. This could have been done whilst remaining within the rules. Team Radio Shack's incorrect behavior led to a 20-minute delay to the start of the final stage, which could have disrupted the televised coverage of the race, placing the commissaires under the obligation to impose a fine on each rider and the team managers. Team Radio Shack subsequently breached the regulations by wearing an incorrect uniform on the podium for the protocol ceremony, having been instructed not to do so. In other words, by the time they got to the podium in Paris, they changed out of their Radio Shack jerseys and back into the 28 jerseys for the podium ceremony. The UCI also deplores the declarations made by Mr. Johan Brunil, who gravely offended all the commissaires working in cycling. His remarks are utterly unacceptable, and Mr. Brunil will be called upon to answer for his comments before the UCI Disciplinary Commission. As the action of Team Radio Shack was inspired by the desire to raise public awareness of the breadth of the global fight against cancer, the UCI has decided that any fines levied as a result of this matter will be donated to the, well, a cancer center in Switzerland. I'm not going to try to butcher that one. Now, following this announcement, Johan Bernil did make a public apology on his blog saying, quote, During the final day of the Tour de France, Team Radio Shack launched the Team 28 campaign in support of the 28 million people worldwide currently living with cancer. As part of our efforts to gain recognition and support for the Livestrong mission, we unveiled special black Radio Shack jerseys with the number 28 on the back. When race officials informed me that the team wouldn't be able to race with these special jerseys, I became frustrated that our message would not be heard and seen around the world. During this time of frustration, 
I put a disrespectful and unprofessional message on my personal Twitter account targeting the UCI race officials. This was not the correct way to handle the situation, nor the example I want to set for my team, family, and fans. I understand the race official's decision and publicly apologize for offending any official or representative of the UCI. It is also my intent to personally apologize to UCI President Pat McQuaid for my remarks. So, a tempest in a teapot, perhaps. However, cycling is a sport that is bound by rules and, as we've talked about here on the show recently, gentlemanly behavior. Rules are rules, whether they govern the way that the race is won uh, or what you are allowed to wear in the race. I think that the UCI has made it clear that they definitely support the cause. They just don't support the means for the message in this case. It's going to be interesting to see how this unfolds. Lance even talked about it today in his press conference, calling the jersey the most controversial kit in professional cycling. I'm interested to see how this unfolds. A couple of more items on Team Radio Shack. First, we've been talking several times over the last few weeks about the fact that federal investigators here in the United States are investigating, well, I guess what we're calling Landisgate or the result of the Floyd Landis emails accusing so many professional cyclists of using performance-enhancing drugs and admitting to his own use thereof. As a result, federal investigators are focusing on Lance Armstrong and have now subpoenaed documents from a 2004 case in which SCA Promotions of Dallas tried to prove that Lance had used performance-enhancing drugs and tried to make that case in order to get out of paying a $5 million performance bonus that it owed Lance for his win in the 2004 Tour de France. As part of those records, There is the testimony of Greg LeMond, Frankie Andreu, Lance Armstrong, and several of Lance's business associates. Meanwhile, as a result of this investigation, Lance's lawyers, remember we talked about how he's hired a criminal defense attorney in this case, are now saying that the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency is offering what they're calling, quote, a sweetheart deal to cyclists and others if they testify or provide evidence that will prove that Lance engaged in doping or the use of performance-enhancing drugs. Now, USADA spokeswoman Erin Hainan said that they would not comment in detail about the investigation or those charges, but did say, quote, our effort in any investigation is a search for the truth, nothing more and nothing less. And in an unfortunate coincidence of timing, It has now been confirmed that Chinese cyclist and former member of Team Radio Shack, Li Fu Yu, his B sample has now come back positive for clenbuterol, which is an anabolic agent that can be used to reduce body fat. We talked about this several months ago when it was originally reported that an A sample had uh, proved positive in an in-competition test on March 23rd. As a result of this test, Secretary General of the Chinese Cycling Association Zhang Bin was quoted as saying, quote, now there is no doubt 
no matter what his excuse was, and no matter how prominent he is in China cycling, the result has been confirmed, and it is impossible to change. Team Radio Shack has already said that if Lee's B-sample did come back positive, he would be fired from the team. But as I said earlier, this is an unfortunate coincidence of timing. Well, cruising around the internet looking for some additional news for this week's show, I came across a piece of information that, well, I found kind of strange and I tweeted about it. And as a result, I got a retweet by someone with 500,000 followers, none other than the star of the movie we're about to talk to. It seems that Bicycling Magazine has now released what they're calling their top nine, I'm not quite sure why nine, but top nine best cycling movies of all time. And Well, we'll start at the bottom. Number nine, a movie called Key Exchange. Number eight, two seconds. Number seven, Stars and Water Carriers. Number six, A Sunday in Hell. Number five, The Bicycle Thief. Number four, ooh, this one hurts, American Flyers. Number three, The Triplets of Belleville. Great animated feature. Number two, the one that I think most of us probably expected to be at the top of the list, at least here in the States, Breaking Away, the iconic coming-of-age movie and tale of the Cutters and the Little 500 in Indiana. And topping the list, and this one, at least to my mind, came out of nowhere, Pee-wee's Big Adventure. And as a result of my tweeting that that was number one on Bicycling Magazine's top cycling movies of all time, I got a retweet by none other than Paul Rubens, Pee-wee Herman himself. Okay, note to self, put Pee-wee's Big Adventure at top of Netflix queue, try to figure out what it was that Bicycling Magazine saw in that movie. And that reminder signifies that this is the end of the news for this week's episode of The Fredcast. Now, before we get to our features and more great content from Press Camp 2010, I want to take this time to thank another one of our sponsors, Epic Planet, their Epic Rides series of DVDs, and their new release, Epic Texas Hill Country. If you've ever been to that part of Texas, you know how great the riding is and how wonderful the scenery is. And just like always, the folks over at Epic Planet have done an amazing job capturing that scenery, bringing it to you for your off-season and rainy day rides indoors. And now, if you act now, Click through the link on thefredcast.com or the one in your enhanced podcast as you see it on your screen right now. And when you buy Epic Texas Hill Country and you use the promo code TEXAS at checkout, you will get $5 off your purchase. Epic Planet makes some of the best virtual cycling videos. I use them all the time for my off-season training, and I encourage you to take advantage of this offer today. We thank Epic Planet so much for their support of the Fredcast, and we thank you for your support of Epic Planet. Still more content to bring you from Dealer Camp 2010, which happened here in Park City in Deer Valley Resort. We had the opportunity to talk to lots of of bicycle and bicycle equipment manufacturers. And next up is our interview with Scott Sports. I'm currently surrounded by the most amazing carbon bikes that I think I've seen in a long time. I'm talking to Adrian Montgomery. Adrian is with Scott 
Adrian is in marketing for their bike line. And Adrian, welcome to the Fredcast. And I've got to ask you about that bike over there. But before we do, if you wouldn't mind, take me through a little bit of the history of Scott. I know that you're far more than a bike company and that you also have um, been in the market, left the market, came back to the market. Take me through some of that. Well, in 1958, Ed Scott invented the aluminum, tapered aluminum ski pole with a rubber grip and a and a basket that was uh, so that was a real departure from what people were using at ski resorts then. They had bamboo poles, leather straps, and that kind of thing, and that was really the first product in 1958. Um, and then we uh, we went on to um, to produce uh, eyewear like uh, goggles and and that that were uh, used for skiing. And so we really started as a ski company. Fast forward to the early 80s, um, mountain biking and was starting to ingrain in the mountain culture. Uh, being ingrained in the mountain culture, and um, so we were very, um, I would say, uh, quick to to bring something to market that served that customer. And so, in the early '80s, we started a. Uh, we were one of the first companies to have a full line of mountain bikes. Uh, we introduced the first suspension fork, which was the uh, um, predecessor to all the stuff that you see now. It's a Unishock, uh, and then we also had, you know, handlebars with integrated um, uh, bar ends, which actually. You know, start a whole movement of of, uh, of bar ends, and so that was sort of the beginning of getting into bikes. Um, then fast forward to the the nineties, and um, we started working with uh, carbon fiber in ninety two, and continued to develop our expertise in the medium um, until you know really CR one, which was a tu- the tube to tube process. Uh, we invented the way to um, custom mold individual tubes, miter them, and carbon weld them together. Um, that was a was a radically different process that is now the most uh, duplicated and copied process in the bike industry. We've moved well beyond that to our integrated molding process. So I guess, long story short, we've been in bikes for you know several years now. Uh, we are the carbon experts. Uh, we build uh, category uh, uh, weight leaders uh, for every type of mountain and and road bicycles. So. Well, speaking of, of category leaders, let's talk about this rocket ship over here across the room. It says high road on it, so that's got to mean that you've you've had a partnership of some sort. Tell me about the development of Tell us about the bike, and then tell me about the development of the bike. Well, you're looking at the Plasma 3, uh, and the Plasma 3 is a time trial uh, slash triathlon bike that, um, you're right, was de- co-developed with high road tech dev, uh, so it's really a relationship between uh, Scott's Aeroscience Group uh, and High Road Tech Dev. So Scott's Aeroscience Group, um, you know, we built two iterations of this plasma before we signed the HTC Columbia team. When we signed the team, uh, we wanted to continue to push the envelope with the product and provide the team with the absolute best equipment possible. So what we were able to do is take all of the the uh, information and the um, intellectual property that High Road Tech Dev brought to the table and um, Scott's Aeroscience Group had brought to the table. Then we consulted with an aerodynamicist and invested in hundreds of hours of uh, wind tunnel testing, uh, rapid prototyping, you know, validating you know, with real data um, that we were making a faster bike that we could provide to the HTC Columbia team. And the results are, the results are in. I mean, we won, Tony Martin won the the um, TT and the, and the Tour de Swiss last week. Um, 
Uh, Tony Martin also won the Tour of California time trial. Uh, Michael Rogers, who won the overall for the Tour of California, uh, secured that win with a, with a great TT. And, you know, honestly, the time trial bike is becoming um, very important because the time trial is separating number one from number two uh, very rapidly. And if you can't time trial, you're not going to win a Grand Tour. Absolutely. Now, what are some of the technological innovations? I mean, you know, I, I jokingly called it a rocket ship, but you start listening to using aerodynamics technology and wind tunnels. I mean, it's a jet fighter. What are some of the core technologies that make this bike not just competitive but superior? Well, the first thing you notice is really the front, the cockpit and the frontal edge of the bike. And you've got to remember in any aerodynamic situation, it's the leading edge that really um, is the, that's the first place that the wind hits. It affects everything else behind it. And so you look at how narrow this head tube is. Um, you look at how the, the stem and top tube is integrated so that it's one complete line from the beginning of the stem to the t- very tip of the, um, the top tube at the seat tube. I mean, this thing is, is definitely built for speed. It's slippery uh, in the wind tunnel. In other words, it doesn't have a lot of drag. It has the lowest drag coefficient of any bike we've tested. Um, and uh, as I said, it took um, a lot of the great features of our Plasma 2 which were twin turbo seat stay or chain stay, sorry, um, our head tube arrangement, and then uh, we made this system integration. Which you were asking me, what's the, the largest, the most significant thing is that front edge. So the stem integrated with the fork and the head tube, uh, making the frontal edge of the bike as aero as possible. And uh, one of the things that also helped make the thing more aerodynamic was the loss of the cables. Um, because we were able to internally route the DI2, that's the Durace Electronic, uh, wires through the handlebars, in through the stem, in through a keyway in the fork, and down through the frame. So, you know, when you think about turbulence, turbulence is, is, an, is an, like an abrupt change in the wind that makes you virtually wider than you are. You are it's like uh, you're trying to throw a spear through the wind versus a rock. So uh, we're trying to make the spear, and you look at the top tube, and it really resembles a spear. So... Those are the advantages that we have is like unique aero tube shapes that are all proven in the wind tunnel with our aero science group and uh, aerodynamicist Simon Smart, who we uh, consulted with uh, on this project. And then the other part is like the validation with the team. I mean, you can make a really fast bike, you know, in theory, but then you've also got to make it capable to fit each of these riders. So we have three frame sizes. Um, We've tested them and validated them with not only our pro tour team, but, um, our pro triathletes on Commerce Bank, um, all of you know, all of the um, the details have been really sweated for you. So all you have to do is buy it, get fit, and you're going to take time out of your bike split if you're a triathlete, or you're going to take time out of your time trial if you're a time trialist. One of the things that, that I immediately noticed as I approached the front end of the bike, fairly unusual when it comes to a time trial bike, the brakes actually in front of the fork. Why'd you do that? Well, uh, as I said, we had tons of time. You, know, you usually do 30-second runs in the wind tunnel, so you, you know, 30 seconds add up to quite a lot after an eight-hour day. But um, we tested every scenario that we could find in uh, the front brake, and we found that mounting it behind the fork, while it had a small change in the drag coefficient, you had an enormous change in the braking performance. And so, you know, uh, one of the analogies that we use is you can't build a Ferrari that goes zero to 60 in you know, under four seconds, but not be able to stop. 
And so we have, you know, national time trial champions that are capable of enormous speeds that none of us are ever going to realize, you know, ourselves. And uh, they need to stop, and they need to have braking performance not only to make, you know, those sharp roundabout right turns onto cobbles. And, you know, there's there's some pretty intense situations in those time trials. So the braking performance outweighed the small gain in moving the brake behind the fork, as did, you know, the funky routing with, you know, bends that are um that are too extreme for the cable and you it's kind of dangled out there you know with a little drag itself so this was uh way cleaner and we tested it we proved it we know it now let's move to your standard road bikes because as we were talking earlier a lot of what makes your time trial bike such a rocket is because it's got some technology that you learned in your standard road bikes what makes your road bikes stand out against the competition well, number one, we have the lightest bikes in the Pro Peloton. So, um, you know, our Addict bike is uh, uh, 790 grams. Um, I mean, you can build a 13-pound bike easily, but you can't race it in a UCI-sanctioned race. So all the bikes weigh 15 pounds. So it's, you know, now they're able to put power meters and ATMs on the handlebar. <laughs> That's a joke, by the way. But, but, but so what happened with the Addict is we developed a process that we call integrated molding process, IMP. And uh, we were already, you know, we already had this expertise and in, in, and we invented the tube-to-tube process. And what we went ahead and did is developed a process where we can make multiple tubes in the same operation and remove excess material, introduce shapes for um, performance benefits and impact resistance, and, and still adhere uh, to all the qualification and safety standards for the, that the European, um, uh, the European standards uh, as well as give you these performance benefits and lightweight. So uh, long story short, when we learned how to make, the, uh, how to do this integrated molding process, it really led us to this project, which is the most complex uh, project we've ever done. And if you look at the various tube shapes and how they all fit together, I mean, this thing, uh, we haven't actually timed it. Uh, so this is an official, but, um, you know, it's somewhere around 80 hours of human labor to build that frame versus 30 hours for a road frame or 40 hours for the previous version of it. So, you know, carbon has to be laid by hand. Um, it needs to be pre-stretched. It needs to be managed at each layer so that it has no voids, no folds. And if you aren't taking care of that material, that cloth, uh, correctly, uh, you're going to end up with an inferior product. Speaking of carbon uh, your your mountain bike over here, which is, you know, I keep using this word, but super sexy. Carbon fiber technology, again, taking some of that expertise that you talked about, explain this product to the listeners. Well, so um, we the previous product that we had was called a Ransom. It was 165 millimeters of travel, all carbon. It was sub 30 pounds. Uh, so, you know, you almost have seven inches of travel at your fingertips. Um, so what we did is, we dropped this bike and we took our Genius platform and moved it into a longer travel version. So that's this is the Genius LT you're referring to. And the Genius LT has 185 millimeters available at 28 and a half pounds. So and you can also lock out the suspension via a handlebar mounted switch, or you can use what we call a traction mode, which is 110 millimeters. So to sum it up, you have a three-position switch on the handlebars. You push the switch all the way forward. You lock out the front fork and the rear shock simultaneously. So climbing is a breeze. Then with one flick of the, of the remote 
uh, lever, you get 110 millimeters of rear travel and an open shock. So now you've got a really adequate trail bike for, you know, climbing traction is good. Um, going, you know, on flatter uh, trails is, you know, totally fun. Got a great geometry. But then when it gets really steep and you get some really aggressive descents or or maybe you're just into, you know, jumping or, or riding in, you know, some more flowy trails, 185 millimeters is a lot of travel. You click that uh, twin lock switch one more time and you you sag the bike a little further you have more negative travel more traction um, the bike is so versatile you can really take it anywhere and that's why we're calling it all mountain because it's the entire mountain it's up across down climb ride descend all of it and um, all mountain is in the u.s it's like 135 millimeters to 160 millimeters is classified as all mountain right but uh, we're offering you 185 millimeters still sub 30 pounds i mean you're really you're not limited at all by your equipment you won't need another mountain bike uh, yeah. after this one well yeah for sure i mean i think one of the things that has um limited the amount of new users to mountain biking is just it's not only that it's kind of technical and and hard to to get used to and learn but also when you go into a retailer you know you say hey, i want a mountain bike and then they they ask you well what kind do you want and uh, this segmentation has led us to sort of narrowing up the amount of use, new users that we're going to find because we start to confuse people with, like, are you going to be an XC racer? Or are you going to be a dirt jumper? And the guy's like, hey, I just showed up because I want to go mountain bike. So the great thing about all mountain is that this is something for the person who's going to own one bike and ride the whole mountain. So uh, this allows us to open up and widen the bandwidth of of uh, potentially new mountain bikers and also for people who are returning to the sport or who just want to narrow down their quiver from you know at one point you know i had seven or eight mountain bikes and i justified the use and ownership of each one of them and really with a bike like this you don't need another bike it's all mountain any trail anytime amazing one more product i want to ask you about and we were looking earlier at a shoe at an excellent price point but also with some features that are, are pretty unique. So tell me about that. Well, so we have um, what we're calling the uh, MTB team. Uh, it features the BOA lacing system, which is a uh, basically a cable that runs through some guides um, that is activated by a dial. So you just tension it by clicking and turning the dial, and then you pull up on the dial to release it. So this is really because it's micro-adjustable and it's on the fly, and because it um, it doesn't tension with like large wide velcro straps, it gives a real uh, even tension across the top foot. So um, this is a feature normally reserved for two hundred dollar plus shoes. We've brought it down to a more to more affordable one hundred and twenty five dollar price point, and it still has a small velcro um, lower strap, and that's just to kind of help you know, take up some of the, um, some of the extra space that you can end up if you've got like a flatter foot or a lower volume foot or expand a little bit if you've got a high arch and that, uh, it also features our ErgoLogic insoles, which have adjustable arch support and um, adjustable metatarsal support. So that's a lot of features in, uh, in a $125 shoe. It has a stiffness index of eight. So we've got, you know, uh, HMF carbon fiber, um, uh, soles that are uh, have a stiffness index of nine, which is, just means it's not going to flex very much. And then our sports shoes go down to about six. So this is a 
uh, low cost, stiff, stiff shoe um, that has packed full of features, lightweight and ultra comfortable. Okay. Just a ton of products we've talked about today, and I don't want to have confused the listeners. Let them know where they can get more information on any of the products that we talked about today. So um, the, the best way to, uh, to find us is scott-sports.com. So um, scott-sports.com is our website. You're going to go to an opening page where you're going to become familiar with some of other, our other product groups, winter sport, motorsport, running, and bike. Uh, you're going to choose the bike category if that's who you're interested. I'm assuming the uh, Fred Cast listeners are looking for bike. Uh, and then, you know, you choose some categories. So navigate as you will. But scott-sports.com is the way to find us. And uh, I'd like to add um, just, you know, when you think about Scott, um, we are the carbon experts. Um, we have revolutionized the way carbon is used for bicycles. Uh, we also work with uh, suspension modules that are. Uh, very unique to our company, uh, and we also have an aerodynamic science group that is very sophisticated uh, and can prove any of our aero um, techniques. So you know we're we have a real three pronged approach to uh, building bikes, and it's we have to have uh, engineers that are good in carbon, engineers that are good in uh, suspension design and engineering, and also engineers who can um, find aerodynamic advantage, which in the future is really going to uh, play into um, products that you guys don't even know about from you know from road bikes to mountain bikes to I mean aerodynamics or things that um, haven't been thought of in some categories so we're already establishing a science group for that amazing just the technology that goes into it the, the fact that you're using aerodynamics I mean most of us hadn't thought that that would be something that we would need in bikes but Adrian thank you for coming on the Fredcast and thanks for sharing just part of the Scott line with us today awesome thanks for having us Next up from Press Camp, we had the opportunity to speak with the folks from Defeat. I'm sitting with Shane Cooper and Paul Willerton from Defeat. Now, Shane, I'm looking at your business card, and I love your title. If you look at my business card, it says producer host Fred. Yours, founder, president, and chief psychologist. So I'm curious. I've never met a psychologist before, so you've got to tell me. you have a degree in that? Yes, it's self-proclaimed, though. My uh, degree has been uh, growing up in a sock machine and tumbling around in sock bins, and so learning – you know, the deniers of yarns and the, the types of screws that operate machines and what they do. So, yes, I'm a self-proclaimed psychologist. I'm a self-proclaimed Fred, too. So um, tell me, you, you, growing up around socks, tell me about that and how you got into being in, you know, really the hosiery business. Interesting story. Uh, my family immigrated from England when I was a kid, and uh, my father was a sock machine seller. And um, when Coolmax first came out in the, the early 90s, uh, I looked at the material and I said they were using it wrong. Typically what happens is they put the soft material on the outside of the sock. And when Coolmax came out, it's a performance um, material that would move moisture. And I said, your socks don't sweat on the outside, your feet sweat. So I reversed some machinery um, and made the, the, the Coolmax go to the inside and started making socks for my bike racing team. And uh, my wife and I were racing bikes and selling socks out of the trunk of our Ford Taurus. <laughs> so that's how we kind of came about. And, but it's, it's really grown from there. So from making it for your team, how did you become you know, really one of the, the, the primary su suppliers of hosiery in the cycling industry? 
Uh, that's a great question. My first love was Cannondale. We were sponsored by Cannondale, and uh, they came knocking on our door when I sent them some fa- some uh, sock samples. And next thing I knew, we had a business. No business plan, no cost of goods knowledge. I was an electronics engineer, musician, um, just uh, you know, one of those guys that they didn't think would uh, make much happen uh, after high school. And uh, luckily, I found cycling and uh, sock business and put it all together. Uh, so kind of a twisted. Now, of course, you've, you've branched out from socks. You do a, a wide variety of products. And as part of that, you brought on Paul Willerton. Now, Paul, you've got a name that I certainly know, and I'm sure some of my listeners know. Give us some of your history in the cycling world. Well, I'll let you know how I met Shane. I was, uh, I was road racing professionally, and I raced with Greg LeMond's Z team. I turned pro for his team in 1991 and um, later I switched to the Subaru Montgomery team which became the U.S. Postal Service team of course but at the 1993 Tour DuPont um, we had a stage that finished I believe in Greensboro or something and uh, it was a really difficult stage and up up comes uh, a man holding out a pair of socks and I had sweat in my eyes and I couldn't really even see his I, I never even saw his face but i grabbed the socks and put them in my jersey i got back to the hotel and i realized wow this is the the most unique pair of socks i've i've ever seen and i'd been riding you know since i was 10 years old already. but uh there was a phone number on the bottom of the sock and i was the only guy who who dialed that number and shane picked up and at the time he had one machine and i ended up helping him uh expand his sales effort and uh every time i went back to the east coast to visit him the the company was growing and and i started lending a hand around the factory and there was always jobs to do so i i really enjoyed it and uh our, our partnership just sort of uh sprang up that way but let me ask you this most people i don't think would be thinking here's a professional bike racer you're you're in some of the the toughest competitions in the world how do you get excited about a sock? What was it about defeat that really turned you on? Well, socks are, are uh, they're an important piece of equipment. And back then, um, socks had not changed in so long. And I have skinny ankles. And my, my socks, you know, we were sponsored by a, a major brand name. And really, for everybody in the team, the socks, would, the cuff would break down after um, sometimes after two races, and if you had to race in inclement weather and washed them one time, the sock was ruined. And we went through just just hundreds of dozens of pairs, and it just seemed wrong. It wasn't the, to throw that much product away. Um, so I, I just paid attention, and, and um, you know, when you're that in tune with things, even if it's just a sock, you, you, you understand. Now, of course, we're talking about the aerator sock, uh, and that's where you were saying that you, you put the cool max where you needed the cool max to be. I'm guessing that this really isn't a unique story. This was something that you heard time and time again, right? Yeah, we did, because what happened is uh, socks were only being uh, used, like Paul said, they would be thrown away. Mm-hmm. And if today, if you go walking around and ask people if they have a pair of defeat on, they probably say, yeah, I've had these for about 10 to 12 years. It's the durability. And in our mind, you know, 17 years later after we started, and especially in this economy, value is durability. You pay $10 for our socks or our competitor's socks, 
you know, which one's going to last you 10 years? And uh, so that durability came with the, the way the sock was constructed. That's our secret ingredient. And uh, even though we can tell it to everybody because nobody can mimic it because we manufacture our own products, 40 American jobs in a nice facility in North Carolina. So that's really important, and, and I want to highlight that. You manufacture all your own product, and I also know that you do custom work as well. And a lot of our listeners have clubs and teams, and they want to have their, their custom socks. You're making those, and, and that's a distinguishing factor for your business, isn't it? Yes, it is, and we'll do uh, small runs of 144 pair, and we'll break that down into uh, 72 per colorway. Mm. And uh, anytime you can give somebody a custom-made product, um, for the same price, they could get you know a regular sock at the bike shop, but it has their name or race logo on it. Uh, that's really cool. They really uh, you know match their uniform and their kit, and it makes it that that extra special. I will say that the USCF rulebook did state that white socks could be worn with only the brand name of the said sock company on it until defeat came on the, on the. Uh, on the circuit, and uh, I believe that rule is no longer in existence, or it's not enforced. So we're kind of like the John McEnroe of the uh, cycling world with socks. But of course, while socks is is really where you started, you've branched out quite a bit. And one of the things that you've been showing a lot here at Press Camp is base layers. And and Paul, I have to ask you as as a racer because I get this question all the time. You know, it's warm outside today. Uh, why would I want to put something between my body and my jersey? What makes a base layer so important to my performance? Well, the uh, even modern cycling jerseys have some shortcomings. And um, when you sublimate a jersey and put all that printing on it, sometimes it does change the makeup of the fabric a bit, and it doesn't really perform all that well even in the heat everyone knows that that it's like riding nude sometimes if you're riding in the cold and and everyone understands layering in the cold and we do have products for that what defeat is focusing on now is is really building the most extensive base layer system um, available for cycling in the world today and it's because we're engineering base layers that are are to be used all the way up through the temperature range into temperatures over 100 degrees. And um, so there are some fabrics that we've found um, that no one else has that um, they, they do affect um, the way we feel temperature against our bodies and, and what happens to the temperatures of our bodies while we're riding in the, in the unique conditions that cycling uh, poses. I was in the start house for uh, the second to last stage of the Tour of California, the time trial in downtown L.A., and watching all these racers come in wearing ice packs on their bodies, right, trying to regulate that core temperature. You talked about wearing a base layer even up to 90 and 100 degrees. In some ways, similar to these guys wearing the ice packs? Uh, yeah, very similar. Um, even fractions of degrees at that temperature can make a difference in your performance. Just like a, just like a high-performance engine, a finely tuned engine, we'll say, um, needs it, it runs best when it functions between certain temperature ranges. And our, our bodies are, are really the same. So that there is the temperature thing in the performance, and um, fit is very important. And also, uh, you know, when we when we fall, there's the there's the protection factor there. Absolutely. 
when when somebody comes to you and they're they're looking for a, a bass layer, as Paul said, you've you've really tried to develop a complete line. Maybe give the listeners some idea of, of what's in that line and what they can expect when they go to your website or they look at your catalog when it comes to the bass layers that you're you're providing now and maybe into the future. Well, very similar to our socks. Uh, we started doing bass layers in 1998, and the first uh, bass layer that we uh, worked on was made of a microdenure acrylic. And that was a very nice bass layer for mild conditions. Uh, you could wear it up to some of the very much warmer conditions. Our, our, that shirt is called the Undie Shirt. Uh, our second shirt that we uh, invented is made of Drylex, which came from the shoe industry of all places the material did. Um, Drylex is made for um, warmer temperatures uh, in the 90-degree range. And as Paul said, what you're doing is you're creating a microclimate next to your skin. And as your body sweats to cool down, the sweat then goes into the shirt and then evaporates into the atmosphere, allowing the body to continue to sweat. And these products are not only tested by the elite athletes in all different conditions, um, but they're tested by the people that make them, and we are the people that make them. So we've started expanding into uh, you know feminine cuts for our undie light. We've uh, we've in, we've brought on a undie wool, which is a merino wool uh, undershirt, which is will not retain odor, uh, works nice in the cooler temperatures. Um, we've also discovered a recycled product, so we have a recycled 100% recycled undershirt, um, and again that that temperature ranges in the upper upper temperature zones and we're working on some top secret stuff uh coming in 2011 uh we are going to be launching the undie extreme and uh all these undershirts are being worn by the uh the htc columbia high road team uh we've been working with this team all year on these products and they also have a women's team and we're getting our feminine cuts from and team tibco is our, our female input team so with all that said our undershirts are like uh you know, socks are under underwear for your feet. Uh, un- we understand next to the skin conditions. So. HTC Columbia. I mean, talking about the, the the tour of California, right? Pretty nice performances. You attribute that to what they were wearing underneath? Absolutely. I'll tell you, uh, keeping the body cool. I mean, uh, you know, Mick Rogers won the race, and uh, Mick Rogers is in our featured video that is on YouTube right now. Uh, and he tells a little secret about his, uh, uh, his, his preference of what undershirt he likes. And it has to do with our new one coming out, the Undie, uh, the Undie Extreme 2011. Something we might see some, some of that team wearing in the Tour de France, I'm guessing. Yes, we're shipping those today, actually. We're shipping about uh, 40, uh, 40 sets over to, to the guys. And I don't know if anybody, any of your uh, listeners... Uh, Saw Cavendish's crash uh, this week, and I I did find out uh, that he was not wearing his undershirt, which he should have been. Mm. And uh, I've got an incredible picture of his back from the road rash that he has on that thing. It's Mm. amazing. So, as Paul said, being able to slide your shirt on asphalt, then on an undershirt, is a very good product uh, to have as protection as well. Absolutely. If people want to get more information about Defeat, about the, the, the products we've talked about, some of the upcoming products and also about your customization where should they go www.defeat.com baby (laughs) excellent thank you so much for your time gentlemen it's been great meeting you and hearing about your product thank you thank you thanks so just two more interviews from press camp i've still got a couple more to come in the next 
episode of the Fredcast. And as always, I do have to make the following disclaimer. Uh, as per the Federal Trade Commission's guidelines, I do want to let you know that I was hosted at press camp. Each of the people that I spoke with was an exhibitor slash sponsor of uh, press camp. And of course, they all uh, gave us a little bit of swag. Uh, but as always, anytime I'm going to be presenting any information to you, it's going to be objective. And anytime I give you a review, there is no way that anybody can buy my opinion when it comes to those reviews. I'm always going to give you my objective opinion of a product, whether I got swagged or not. And on that, you can rest assured. And I'd like to take this opportunity to thank our two sponsors for this week's show, Jensen USA, where you can go to get great prices, great products, great selection, and great customer support. Go to www.jensenusa.com slash the Fredcast, and also Epic Planet, their Epic Rides DVD series, and specifically their new release on the Texas Hill Country. Go to www.thefredcast.com and click on the link there. Don't forget to use the promo code TEXAS at checkout for your discount. And of course, thank you for not only supporting our sponsors, but also for supporting the Fredcast through your donations and that donate link at www.thefredcast.com. If you'd like to stay in contact with the Fredcast on a day-to-day basis, the best way to do that is through our Twitter feed at twitter.com slash Fredcast. For instance, had you been listening or, pardon me, following our Twitter feed today, you would have found links to live streaming coverage of the Governor Ritter and Lance Armstrong press conference, and you would have been one of the first to find out about Levi Leipheimer participating in this year's tour of Utah. So that's twitter.com slash Fredcast. Of course, We also have a website at www.thefredcast.com. Of course, we're on Facebook at facebook.com slash fredcast. And our email address is thefredcast at gmail.com. If you'd like to leave us a message, just call 661-513-FRED. That's 661-513-3733. Well, it is that time of the show where we bring you Pod Safe Cycling Music. And this week's Pod Safe Cycling Music was chosen specifically for the Fredcast by the Cadence Revolution, your weekly podcast of Pod Safe Music that's perfect for your indoor cycling or other workouts indoors. Available at www.cadencerevolution.com. Tonight's music was located at Aerial Publicity, and it is by the band Calliope, and it's called Around the World. Of course, there are links in the show notes not only to Cadence Revolution, but also to where you can find this song and this artist on iTunes. So go ahead and check that out. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for staying subscribed. Thanks for telling your friends about the Fredcast Cycling podcast. We will be back in just another week with another episode of the Fredcast Cycling Podcast, but between this week and the next, enjoy the music, but most of all, enjoy the ride. From the western coast to the-